morning, everybody. Glad you're here. As you find your seat, you can turn to Revelation chapter 20. That's where we're going to be camped out uh, this morning. And uh, we'll jump around a little bit just to kind of we're coming to the end of the book of Revelation. And so it's kind of a big deal because as you come to the book, the end of the book of Revelation, it's also the end of all of Scripture. So it's like the culmination of Genesis through the rest. And so there's a lot there. Uh, we are still in the midst of our series, at least for a couple of more weeks, um, called Blessed. And we have a question mark. The reason is because when most people, as we've said week after week, when most people think about the book of Revelation, even when I went home on Thanksgiving and talked to some of my family about the fact that we're doing a series through the book of Revelation, many of them were like, oh, like their eyes rolled, like, oh my goodness. And that's exactly why I didn't even want to preach to Revelation for the longest time. Is because it was like, okay, I don't want this to be like this dread, this horrible, oh, you know, awful, causes arguments and everybody's fighting and what does this mean and that mean. And so it took me actually a long time of preaching through the rest of scripture to kind of get a, a handle on, okay, what is the book of Revelation really about? What's, what's its true purpose? And, and it's not like I, you know, figured that out on my own. John says it right at the beginning of the book. And we've talked about this each week. But he says, the one who reads this is blessed. Those who hear and keep it are blessed. And then he says at the end of the book, which we're getting ready to come up on, blessed is he who heeds this book. So the whole book and the word blessed there in the original Greek means happy. Like that's what it means. So he's literally saying, happy are those that read Revelation, that, that keep it, that hear it and they're encouraged by it. And it's like most Christians, when they hear the word revelation, it's like, oh, it's, it's an eye roll, not a yes. I'm so, oh, yeah, I'm so happy that I know this. And so that's kind of why we chose to say, look, do, do you truly believe, with a question mark, do you truly believe that revelation is a book of blessing? Because it is. It's a book that should make us very happy. Is it confusing? Absolutely. But sometimes... The most confusing things make us very happy, right? That we just laugh at the craziest stuff. Remember what Jesus said as we go through our series. Jesus said in Acts, when his disciples asked him, when, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel? Is it at this time? Like, like they wanted to know, when's the end? When's it all going to happen? And Jesus looked at them and he said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons the Father has set by his own authority. He looks at them and he says, you're not going to know. I'm not, I'm not going to reveal that to you. The Father is not going to reveal that to you. Now, he's given us some of it in the book of Revelation, but we don't know. We don't know when everything's going to happen and how it's going to happen. And scholars have argued about it for centuries, so don't think you're going to figure it out. And so you, we've got to be very careful to realize that Jesus said you're not going to know, but he said this is what you can know, that you will receive Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. The word witness there means martyrs. It means those who give their life, lay down their life to make known the message about God and the message about his Messiah, who is Jesus. And Jesus' name means Yahweh who saves. Right? And so he says, you'll be my witnesses right where you're at in Jerusalem, to Samaria, that's the people you don't want to talk to, but they need to hear the gospel, and to the ends of the earth. The region, all of it. And so Jesus even says, quit worrying about when 
is the kingdom going to come? It's going to come. I've given you the book of Revelation so that you can be happy about it. You can trust it. You can know it. But don't be so concerned with that. Be more concerned. Be absolutely concerned with the power you've been given to make me known through your life. And that's why we've gone through this book. And as we wrap it up, we're seeing Jesus come to the end and lay it all out. Last week, we talked about praise giving. And here are some of the other titles. But last week we said Thanksgiving and we looked at the fact that in chapter 19 you see all this praise being given because Jesus comes back to the earth, back to Jerusalem and there's a great army and all kinds of stuff. You can go back and look at that. But the whole focus was give praise to him. Not for all the things that he's giving you, which is what Thanksgiving is, thanking God for things, but just because he is who he says he is. And he's going to do what he says he's going to do. And that should bring you great joy. This week, I want to look at thousand. When you see the word thousand or thousands, what pops in your head? Don't say it out loud, just think. Because most of the time when we see the word thousand, we think money, right? I got thousands. Or we think people, like there are thousands watching World Cup right now and college football, right? I mean, they're packing state thousands. But most of us, when we think of the word thousand or thousands, we don't think of eternity. And the book of Revelation is supposed to be a book, and as we get to chapter 19 and the following chapters, it's really a book that's showing us that for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years to come, God is going to be our God, and we are going to be his people if we know him. And it's absolutely critical. In this chapter, chapter 20... The word thousand is mentioned six times. Six times it talks about a thousand years. And we're going to break that down in just a moment. One of the things I want to give a disclaimer on is there's a guy that I use as a resource. It's a former pastor. He was a pastor in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. His name's Ray Stedman. You can look up his stuff online. It's all free. I love his website. His family and the legacy and the church have provided all of his resources, sermons, studies, all of that free online, which I think is amazing because he could easily charge for it, and they don't. They give it away. Um, and I'll unapologetically say that a lot of what I'm going to say this morning, if you went back and listened to Ray Stedman's sermon on this, you'll probably hear a lot of similar things. Because I think he does one of the best jobs out of all the commentaries and things I've read. He does one of the best jobs of kind of laying out this chapter in a way that I think is really helpful for us to find God's blessing in. Just so you remember, God's heart for all of eternity has been to bless the thousands. In Deuteronomy 7, this is the beginning of the Bible. This is when he's making his covenant with his people for the first time. In Deuteronomy 7, he says, know that Yahweh your God, Yahweh is the name he gave himself for his people to refer to him. He he actually said, I want you to call me by name, not just, ooh, scary God off somewhere, but here's my name. And Yahweh means I am or, or he is everything. Yahweh your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his gracious covenant loyalty for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commands. But he directly pays back and destroys those who hate him. He will not hesitate to directly pay back the one who hates him. From the beginning, God says, you have a choice to make. You can either recognize that I'm wanting to do things in your life that you don't understand that will make a difference 
thousands of generations from now? Thousands. Not like three generations, your grandchildren or great-grandchildren. No, no, no. Thousands of generations from now. And you think, oh, I don't know about that. Have you read the Bible? Like there are these people mentioned. There's genealogies in the Old Testament of all these people. And then we find out all of their sons and daughters like later in the New Testament and connected to it. And how it's all God working generation after generation after generation to prove his blessing and faithfulness to his covenant for people that will say, you know what? I'm not going to try to get what I want from God. I'm going to surrender to him and I'm going to teach the next generation to do the same. Psalm says it this way. Psalm being the songs of the Bible. It was sung. He is the Lord our God. His judgments govern the whole earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The promise he ordained for a thousand generations. Like anytime you see this reference to a thousand in the Bible. The point of it is to be. It's to like make you think man that's, that's, that's like immeasurable. Right? Like that's I can't even wrap my head around that. And God's like yeah that's how much I keep my word. That's how faithful I am to what I say I'm going to do, and I do it. He goes on and he says in Exodus, do not make an idol for yourself. This is a part of the Ten Commandments. This is the Big Ten right here, right? Even though our Big Ten's like 13 now. Well, anyway, we can't count. Anyway, so do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters underneath the earth. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's sin to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. You see where this keeps going? He says, there's a choice. You can either hate me and refuse me, or you can accept me and accept the blessings that come with knowing me. There's two options. And he says... But showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. You know, so often in the church we get wrapped up on, well, you know, am I supposed to work and get salvation or is it just grace? Yes, it's just grace, but works follow grace. When you are in a relationship and you understand what the other person has given to you and you understand what you've surrendered to have that person in your life, the natural byproduct is it changes what you do. You no longer do things that the other person hates because you love them. It's like a no-brainer. And yet, when it comes to God, and we're going to see in Revelation as we wrap this up, this is really important because we see this love-hate relationship. We see this judgment in chapter 20. We see all these things that God, all the way at the beginning of this whole process, was laying out, bringing it to culmination in the 20th chapter of Revelation. So let's dive in. He says... Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the keys to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he, that being Satan or the devil, must be released for a short time. There's a lot to unpack here, but the first thing I want to look at is this idea of a thousand. It's actually in Latin, and it means millennium. The word is where we get the word millennium. And that's why this brings up one of the greatest debates of almost all of Scripture. 
And it's these two words that you will hear thrown around theologically if you are a Christian and you're around the church long enough. You will hear people call about, say, premillennial or they're amillennial. Premillennialism, amillennialism. Okay? Premillennialists believe that there is literally coming a thousand year reign of Christ upon the earth. In chapter 19, when Jesus comes back, he comes to Jerusalem. We looked at that last week. And everyone's giving his praise. At that moment, Jesus is going to do, he's going to win the battle that we see in chapter 19. Then he's going to grab this serpent. He's going to throw him into the abyss. And there's going to be a thousand year reign of peace, prosperity. And and Jesus is literally going to be on the earth reigning for a thousand years. And that will fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies concerning an earthly reign in the promised land. And Satan will be bound during that thousand years. The amillennials or the amillennialism, they're basically non-millennialists. They're saying what happened or what's going on in the thousand years is happening right now. That we're actually in the thousand years. That the word thousand isn't actually a literal thousand. It's saying like so many thousand generations you can't count. And that we're, we're, we're actually in this moment where Christ is won the battle on the cross. Satan has been bound by Christ's death on the cross. The, this is all figurative. The ten represents fullness. A thousand is ten times ten, so it's the fullness of God. And that right now the church is winning people to Christ and doing what it needs to do, and we're waiting for Christ's return as he keeps the peace and keeps things going. The problem with both beliefs that you have to be careful of is that by subscribing to one or the other exclusively, you end up with some problems theologically, and most of the time, people that subscribe to one or the other end up playing spiritual hopscotch all over the Scripture. In other words, it's like, well, I like this part of the thousand-year reign and these little certain things, but then I want to still believe over here. Our church doesn't take a stand. I would lean towards premillennialism, and I'll show you why in just a moment. But this is one of the greatest debates that people talk about. And the reason boils down to something very simple. And it's this idea of Satan being bound. This binding of Satan. And you've probably heard this before where people say, you know, I bind you Satan in Jesus' name. You see, we love power. We love to think we have power. That we can control spiritual things by our words that we speak. Because we're just that prideful. And chapter 20 of Revelation shows us how deep that pride goes when you get to the end of the book. That's the purpose of this chapter. It's also the purpose, what I think, of the thousand year reign of Christ. Is to show us how wicked at our own hearts we are. You see, here's why I struggle with the amillennial belief. And I lean more towards the fact that there is going to come a thousand year reign. And it's because of scripture. Because again, I would love to be able to bind Satan. I'd love to be able to say, Satan gone in that person's life and in that situation and that thing. Right? I would love to be able to do that. I can't. I'm not God. I'm also not the angel that binds Satan. Because in this verse, it's not Jesus who binds Satan in here. He sends an angel to bind him. So it's not even Jesus. He says the angel's in charge. It's not we get to do it. Jesus sends an angel to do it. To grab him and chain him and seal it off. And so if this has happened, 
like many say that we're in this time, then why do we have all the evil and it's not peace and it's a disaster on the earth right now? Because it's a big mess. Versus, no, there is going to come this thousand-year reign of Christ where people are still going to live and die and they'll be resurrected someday, but not fully yet. And that's what you get, get, get down to. It's the already but not yet. Already Satan is defeated because of what Christ has done and what he's done on the cross, but just not fully yet. We're already saved. We're promised a new life. We're promised heaven. We're promised a new body, just not yet. And that's the thing that drives us batty because we can't stand to not have control and call things into existence and make things happen. It drives us nuts. Let me explain to you why I think that there's a problem with the amillennial view. The premillennial view is probably the better view, but I'm not going to fight to the death on this one. James says this. James is writing his book to the church, James being an apostle of Jesus. And he says, you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your evil desires. You want to bind Satan, you want to do all this stuff so that you can have the outcomes you want. When you want them. And see, that's the problem with the amillennial belief system at times. Is it's like everything's just symbolic. So there's nothing literal. I'm not held accountable to anything. He goes on and he says, adulteress. That word adulteress we talked about. That's the great harlot Babylon that we looked at earlier. Or just a few weeks ago in Revelation. It's God's favorite term he uses with people who call themselves his children. But then refuse to follow him or submit to him. It's his favorite term. He calls them adulterers. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? When you want the world to work out the way you want it to work and you manipulate the world for your benefit, you better be careful because Jesus didn't come and give his life to manipulate the world. He gave his life to show the world he couldn't be manipulated and you can't kill me. I'll come back to life. He goes on, he says this, So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. Or do you think it's without reason, the scripture says that the spirit who lives in us yearns jealously. There's a God who is a jealous lover. He loves us so jealously that he is going to fight us and he's going to fight anything that comes because he wants our hearts. Then he says, but he gives greater grace. I love that. He says he gives this incredible grace because he knows this this battle that we're in for the heart is so difficult. And then he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He resists those that have all the answers and I can do and I'll make, I'm resisting that. I'm looking for the humble. They're like, God, I just submit. I, I don't know and I'll follow you. And I don't need to know and I don't need to prove anything. I just need to be a witness to who you are, period. End of story. That's all my job is and I can trust you in that. Whether I'm two years old or 82 years old, I can do that. And then James says this, look at this. Therefore submit to God, but resist the devil and he will flee from you. Well, if the devil's bound, then why do I need to resist him? If we're in the thousand-year reign of Christ, then why do I need to bind it? Notice, James doesn't write, bind the devil, and he will flee from you. 
He says you have to resist. That's an act of our heart and our will involved with God's will. That's messy. That, that's an act of surrender. That's not me just claiming something and then what taking my hands off. That is me actively resisting what's going on in my life and in my heart and saying, no, no. And it's a constant resisting. It's a battle. When there's a resistance, it's things rubbing together. There's a resistor, a resistance to it. That's exactly what James is writing. He could have said, bind the devil and he'll flee. Just say, in Jesus' name, and the devil goes away. That's not what James says. He says, you're going to have to resist. It's going to be a battle. And then he says... The way you resist is you draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You don't just make proclamations. You draw near to him, and then he says, and then you cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded people. There's an active role of God giving his grace in our response. Works, yes, but not because we're trying to get something. The works come from us simply surrendering to God and saying, you're in control, I'm drawing near to you, and I'm going to let your Holy Spirit do your work, and I'm going to allow the body of Christ and others who have the Spirit to hold me accountable and help me resist and help me to become who you want me to be. That's what James laying out here. So if Satan's bound right now, why do we need to resist him? He should be bound in an abyss with a seal over him. I don't think he's bound. Peter says this. Peter says, be serious. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, sorry, Code, I clicked on you. The advers- your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. If he's bound, then how is he on the prowl? How, how can, he's roaring. Like, Saint doesn't even try to hide anymore. He's just like, rah. I mean, he's just out there. And we're just running in fear and making, like, And he says, resist him. Peter repeats James, resist him and be firm in your faith. That's your trust in God, knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. You're going to resist him. You're going to resist resist Satan and you're going to suffer. Because when you resist in a battle, it's conflict. Not you're going to bind him. He's going to go away and it's going to be no problem. You're just going to get to go, coast, no, no big deal. He says, no, you're going to have, this is going to be a resistance. This is going to be a battle in your life till the end. And then he says, now the God of all grace, he, he says exactly what James says. He says, the greater grace, the God that gives you unmerited grace that you don't deserve, unmerited favor you can't earn, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will personally restore, establish strengthen and support you after you have suffered a little. The dominion belongs to him forever, amen. We live in a culture, especially in a Christian culture, where we've just grown so tired of suffering, we've decided it doesn't exist. That the ultimate goal is to be happy, blessed, But we don't understand Matthew 5 when Jesus says what the blessings are in the Beatitudes that we looked at in the first sermon series of this series when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, blessed are those who are persecuted. These are not things we want in our culture. I don't want to be hungry and thirsty. I don't want to be poor in spirit. I want to be strong in spirit. I don't want to be persecuted. 
And Jesus says, no, 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 those prove that the blessing is happening in your life. It means you're resisting. It means, and in all of those things, he gives a promise. He says, blessed are those who mourn because you'll be comforted. Blessed are you who suffer because you'll be victorious. But see, we want the victory. We want the other side without having to go through it. And that's where this whole binding Satan movement comes from. I can just bind it and then walk on with my life. Resist. Resist means he's still coming at you. (laughs) He goes on and says this in Revelation. He says, then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. So here you have Jesus. He has come back. He's made his way in the world. He's doing what only he can do. He's now showing himself to be who he is. We see in that first section that the angel's going to come down from heaven. He grabs Satan. He throws him into the abyss. We're going through this process, and then all of a sudden there is a judgment. This is a big judgment. You see, but who are these people who are seated and given authority to judge. We saw this in the beginning of Revelation with the 24 elders around the throne and those who are martyred under the altar and given the ability to judge. This is another problem in our culture. The idea of judging is something we don't want to talk about. We don't like to talk about judging. We do, but we don't. Matthew said this in 27, 28. Jesus said to them, I assure you, In the messianic age, that's the thousand-year reign of Christ that we read about in Revelation. When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. He's talking to the disciples, the 12 disciples here, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left their houses, brothers or sisters, father or mother, children or fields because of my name will receive 100 times more and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And the last will be first. Those who think that they've got all the answers, those who think they've got it all figured out, and they're the first to speak, they're the first to tell you their opinion, they're the first, the first, the first, be careful. Because in my kingdom, they may be the last. And those who have chosen to be last and say, you know what, I just want to be a servant. I just want to be a humble servant. Use me however, on whatever stage you want, God. Those are the ones in his kingdom that will be first. So he says he sees these ones seated on thrones. These are the disciples judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he goes on and he says, I also saw the people who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of God's word who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or on their hands, they came to life and reigned with the Messiah for the thousand years. So these are resurrected people. They're coming back to life, and they're going to reign with them. These are the ones, before Jesus comes back in chapter 19, it's everybody that died from the beginning of creation, believing by faith in Christ, all the way up to the point of chapter 19 when Jesus comes back, and now you have this moment. And he says, these people are going to be given special rights because they chose all the way to say, kill me if you want to. I believe in a greater blessing than anything you can withhold from me or give me. 
I believe in an eternal blessing that doesn't patch anything. So take anything you want. Do whatever you want to me. It doesn't matter. And this is where this whole idea of judging gets really messy for us. Because it's like, you hear the verse that's used so often in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and it said, you know, he says, judge not. For by the measure by which you judge, you will be judged back to you. That's what Jesus says. He doesn't say not to judge. The Bible doesn't say not to judge. It just says be careful because when you judge, the measure you use will be judged back to you. Our judgment is the measure of Christ. When we're judging people, I'm not judging them on, did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do this? I'm judging them on, do you know this guy that's coming? Have you surrendered to him? Do you know him? Because if you don't, you're in trouble. It doesn't matter how many good things you do or how many bad things you do. When he shows up, we're all going to be like, we're worthless without him. And so, so again, it's this idea that these people are the ones that said, I'm not going to just try to bind the whole world to make it work for me. I'm going to go through and resist and fight and love God and serve him and draw near to him when things are tough because that's the point. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. The apostle Paul who, again, Jesus appeared to him. He surrendered his life. He was a murderer of Christians and then became a Christian and then he was martyred. He was one of these ones that got his head cut off. The guy that's writing this is one of the guys that is talked about in Revelation. That's the guy. Paul writes, if any of you has a legal dispute against another, do you dare go to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? See, we love to judge. We love to get right judgments for ourselves. Paul says. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Paul says that you and I, as believers in Jesus, are going to judge. The Bible also says we're even going to judge the angels. Like the angels, we're going to be the ones that say, those are the angels that went with Satan, those are the ones that went with God, those ones go with, like we are going to judge with Christ and make proper judgments. Again, not based on you did this, this, but based on him and what, who he is and what he has done. And then he says, look at this. And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest cases? Why do you have such a problem just looking at the word of God and going, nope, that's wrong. I can judge that. That's that's just wrong. It says it right there. It's the smallest thing right there. Why are we so afraid of that? Why are we so afraid to look at someone in love and say, I'm concerned for you. The Bible says this is dangerous. Don't do this. Why do we, like, in our culture, especially Christian culture, like, tolerance is the highest value. And and if I just tolerate and I'm just nice long enough, everybody will repent. Revelation 20 is the exact passage that says that is not going to happen. We'll see it in a minute. It's crazy. It's not going to happen. There's a judgment that we have to make. We don't make it meanly we don't make it binding and I know and I know we make it and go Jesus help me discern help me know I want to do your will be done then he says don't you know that we will judge angels not to mention ordinary matters Paul's looking at them he's going he's writing to this first Corinthian church and they're in this church and they won't discipline anybody 
They won't stand up for the things, like simple things, finances, relationships. They just won't do it. So Paul is writing a letter to this church and saying, what are you doing? Your job is to go out and tell people, if you do this, it's evidence that you don't know Christ. Don't do this. And the only way you cannot do this is by knowing and drawing near to Christ and his grace. That's the message of the gospel. But we've lost that. And Paul says in this First Corinthian church, you've lost that. You're so scared of judging anybody that you're not helping yourself or anybody else. You're actually destroying the church. And it's being sent out to the other churches. So I'm writing to you to confront you and say, don't you understand that you have a role to make good judgments in the world, starting with your own head, your own heart, your own life. Don't go judge everybody else until you expect and inspect yourself. And once you have, here's the, here's the great beauty of it. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're a mess. You're going to keep messing up. But when we go to Christ with that mess and say, I, I trust you, then I can go to my friend and look at them and say, and you're making a mess. And when they look at me and say, yeah, but you do too, I can look at them and go, I know. And God gives greater grace. And he is so good. And that's why I'm here to tell you, stop doing this. Come along with me. I'll help you resist. But you got to know Jesus to do it. Let's resist together. Let's fight together. That's the gospel. That's what Paul's writing to his church. And then he goes on. He says this. So if you have cases pertaining to this life, do you select those who have no standing in the church to judge? This is what we do. We love to get people on our side that believe what we believe, that say what we say, that'll back up what we've already decided. We don't want to go to those we know are going to look at us and go, ah, the Bible says. You need to deal with this. I'll walk you through this. We're going to suffer through this together. We just want somebody who's going to agree with us or fix the problem and move on. I want you to bind this, deal with this, and move on. And Paul is saying, where are the people that will like have good standing in the church? They've shown that their life is a life of good judgments. They've judged wisely in their life. And why don't you go to them? Why are you going to all these other people who just tell you what you want to hear? And then he says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who's able to arbitrate between his brothers? Like you won't even bring these matters to the church. You go to the local courts. You, you go to the, to the police. You go to all these other places, but you won't look at the matters and deal with these simple cases. Then he says, instead, believer goes to court against believer. And that before unbelievers, you're going to trust unbelievers' judgment? Therefore, to have legal disputes against one another is already a moral failure for you. Why not rather put up with injustice? Why not rather just be cheated? Oh, I'm an American. Those are two things I cannot allow to happen. Injustice and cheating. By the American definition of injustice and cheating. God's like... What did Jesus do when he came? He submitted to every earthly authority. He took every injustice and he was cheated in every way. And then when that happens to us, we're like, oh, I got I to, I'm going to, no. Paul's saying, yes, make good judgments, but be careful you don't become one of those people that is running around and you, be careful. And then he says, look, instead, you act unjustly and cheat. And you do this to believers. 
You do this to those who are acting righteously and trying to resist and are trying to walk with God instead of those that are actually unbelievers but look like believers or those who are truly unbelievers. Don't you know that the righteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Or the unrighteous will not inherit God's Don't you know that those who can't do what is right prove that they're not a part of God's kingdom? Because the way you prove you're a part of his kingdom is that you submit to a kingdom. Like, I'm a part of this kingdom, so I submit to the king, and I submit to the kingdom. (laughs) If you don't, then you're proving I'm not a part of that kingdom. I'm choosing this kingdom over that one. I say I'm a part of this one, but I do all this stuff that's the opposite. It's like a marriage. I'm married to this person, but I'm cheating with these other three. But I'm still married. I really love her. and I'm No, that's unrighteous. Now, what do we do with unrighteousness? What do we do with injustice? We confess it. We take on God's grace. That's the point. And again, these are the pictures that we see of how to handle things properly. Verse 5 says this, the rest of the dead. So now we've dealt with those that were martyred, those that were going to sit on the 12 thrones. And he says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. That's you and me. If you don't get your head cut off as a martyr, you got to wait. Sorry, it's right there. That doesn't mean go try to get your head cut off as a martyr. Don't do that. Okay, that's not the goal. (laughs) The goal is to walk faithfully with Christ and trust him. But it says they're going to wait. But it's probably not actually those of us who are believers. It's probably more talking about unbelievers. Those of us who are believers and have lived our faith and have lived as martyrs and been witnesses, we probably will come back to life in this thousand-year reign. We probably will not have to wait. But it's those lost that don't know Christ that are going to be judged. And he says this is the first resurrection. So there's going to be a second resurrection. So the first resurrection is for us as believers. There's some scholars who think not all believers. I I tend to think all believers. But first resurrection, the believers come together, we reign with Christ. Then it says this. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and the Messiah, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Blessed are those. of The, sec- the second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and the Messiah, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. It's this idea that what are we longing for the thousands? I hope that I have that long. I hope that I can trust in his resurrection. And it says we won't have to die again. We're going to have one death and we're going to come back to life. We don't have to die again. But there's going to be a second death, the Bible says, for those who don't know this. Colossians 2, this is Paul writing again to the church in Colossia. He says, and when you were dead in your trespasses... And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, we were dead. We need a resurrection. And he says, he made you alive with him and forgave all of your trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with all its obligations that was against us and opposed to us. And he has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. Look at this. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them by him. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food or drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are shadows or a shadow of what was to come. 
and the substance is the Messiah. Notice he doesn't say, don't let anyone judge you for your sexual immorality. Don't let anyone judge you for your lying. Don't let anyone judge you for all those other things. What he's talking about here is don't let people judge you in the way that you just worship simply and understand how to just give more of your life to God. Yes, we're supposed to hold people accountable to unrighteousness. Asking them to repent, that's the whole purpose of the Bible. But he said, be careful when you've got all these people who are saying, you don't believe the right things about Revelation, and so I don't know if you can be in our church. You don't, you don't do all these things exactly, so you, know, you don't celebrate Christmas and Easter right, so you're out. You don't celebrate the Feast of the Old Testament the way God said to celebrate them, so I don't know if you're really a believer. Versus saying, well, you, you, you've submitted to Christ, you know him, you, you're resisting sin, you, you say that all the sins God says are sins you're fighting against and you want no part of them and you struggle with them, it's like, okay, you're a believer. But I miss church sometimes. Oh, okay, yeah, it happens. Just stop, get there more often. <laughs> again that's a festival when we gather it's a festival I missed a festival okay well why did you miss a festival because I'm lazy I was tired I didn't want to go well do you see that's bad yeah I do I'm sorry okay great see you next week see be very careful because we want to judge all the wrong things and then we don't judge the right things Paul is saying and he said, you've got to judge back to the substance of the Messiah, who he is and what he wants to do in our lives. Not disregarding the moral law, but being careful with the ceremonial and Levitical law of the Old Testament. Verse 7 says, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them up for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They came up over the surface of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. The fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Why would God release Satan? When I read this passage, that was my first question. If you've already defeated him and you've bound him, why in the world would you turn him back loose? What kind of God does that? What is the point of doing that? Why, why would you let him go when you've defeated him? Why would you bring that and allow that to happen? You don't read that and think that? I do. I struggle with that. And I'm like, why, God, would you... Would you allow this? This is amazing. You ready for this? The reason he allows this is to show everyone, including ourselves, that this whole devil made me do it is a lie. There's no devil making you do it. There's no devil causing you to rebel against God and go to Gog and Magog. You chose to not submit to Christ. You chose in your flesh and in your wicked heart. And that is a message we, again, can't stand in our culture today. Everybody's good, right? Everybody's basically good. And then the world corrupts them and they become evil. Satan gets a hold of them. The Bible does not say that. The Bible says you were born with a sinful nature. And by God and his grace, he saves. 
and gives grace and somehow spares life when we deserve nothing and deserve death. That's the Christian message. If you don't like that message, then don't be a Christian. Be something else. That's the biblical message. And this whole point of all of this is because he's saying, I bound Satan, and there are all these people who are saying, oh yeah, I follow you, I follow you, I follow you, and then Satan's going to come, and all of a sudden their hearts are going to be revealed that they weren't following Jesus because they love Jesus. They were following Jesus because they just liked the peace and liked the rain. I liked what I got from him for the last thousand years. And all of a sudden, their hearts are exposed. Because there's a number of them that gather from the four corners of the earth that were willing to submit and not attack and go along with. And now it's like, oh, finally, I've been waiting in my heart for this moment where I can get them. Welcome to Facebook. I got a zinger. Get them. Tell them. Tweet that. Pop it there. Take that. Yeah. I did good. Be careful. It's not wrong to call out sin. It's not wrong to make wise judgments. But be careful why in your heart you're doing it. That's why Jesus says be careful with the measure by which you judge people. Because that measurement will come back on you. Jesus can measure everyone because he placed all the measurement of the world on himself. So he has the full ability, as we see in this passage, to judge everything and everyone because he's taken it all. And he looks at them and he says, you know, I'm doing this so it just proves to you and proves once and for all to the world that without a heart change and a surrender and a decision made to follow me, the circumstances you're in won't matter eventually. Eventually you'll turn. Eventually you'll quit. Eventually you'll say it's not worth it anymore. Eventually you'll be done. But if you know Christ, you won't. You'll fail. You'll fail miserably. You'll go through mess and suffering and you'll keep coming back and drawing near to him and the greater grace and saying you reign, you're God, forgive me, help me make you known and that's the process that you'll do for all of your life. Knowing you can't fix it. Jeremiah 17.5 says this, this is what the Lord says, the man who trusts in mankind, who makes human flesh his strength and turns his heart from the Lord is cursed. And we put a lot of confidence in human flesh and strength. The man who trusts in the Lord, verse 7, who, whose confidence is indeed in the Lord is blessed, is happy. Verse 9, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Your heart on this side of eternity will never be cured. It has to be crushed and destroyed and you have to be given a new body and a new heart someday. And Jesus is in the process of doing that, that sanctification while we're here, but there's going to come a day when it will be fully done. And then Jeremiah says, who can understand the heart? <laughs> you think you understand the heart? Pause. Go back to pride and humility and say, no, I don't get it all. He says, I, Yahweh, examine the mind. I will test the heart to give to each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. 
A throne of glory on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. That's what we just read about in Revelation. The Lord, the hope of Israel, all who abandon you will be put to shame. All who turn away from me will be written in the dirt, for they have abandoned the Lord, the fountain of the living water. Jeremiah, hundreds of years before Revelation, lays out what we're reading here in Revelation. It's the same message. It hasn't changed. And you say, oh, he's going to, it says here he's going he's to do whatever their works, each, each according to his way and his, what his actions deserve. Okay, what do your actions deserve? My actions deserve death. I'm really glad I got a guy who died for my actions. His name's Jesus. Because if I don't have that, I got to die for my actions. And that's my way. My way is he is the way, the truth, and the life. That's the way I'm trusting him. He goes on and says this in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and the books were open. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up its dead, and death and Hades gave up their dead. That means those who have died all the way through history. And all were judged according to their works. Those that are being judged at the great white throne in this moment, ready for this? Are the ones that were still dead after the first resurrection. That's not those of us who know Jesus. This isn't believers here being judged. This is the world coming before the great white throne of judgment, thinking they were good. They did all these great things. They were able to work their way to be right with God, and they're going to stand before him and realize, oh, my goodness. I have nothing to offer but my own flesh to God. And it says, anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire with the devil and the beasts and everyone else. You know, we read this, and this is really hard. Again, we're coming to the end of the book. We're coming to the end of time. This is like, wow, if, if this is Christianity, do I really want to believe this? This is Christianity. This is talked about through the whole Bible. We struggle with this idea of name written in the book of life. Like, really? Let me ask you, did you struggle this week when you went to a restaurant and they said you couldn't come in because you didn't have a reservation? Did you try to go get in the football game or the basketball game this week and got really mad and pitched a fit and told them how unjust they were that they didn't let you come in? If you were selling tickets to something you were doing and people didn't have a ticket, would you just say, yeah, anybody can come in? Would that be a just thing to do to all those who bought tickets and followed the right process? You see, we're fine with how the world runs and judges, but the second God does, we're like, oh, no. Is your name written in the book? You're going to show up, and he's going to be like, your name's not on the list. You were invited to the feast, and you didn't come. We looked at that a few weeks ago. You, you didn't reserve your spot for the feast. Sorry. Depart. Good luck. This is how the world works. It's how we know things work. And the reason it works is because God is leading us to a point where we're going to have to stand before him and realize 
Yeah, I didn't get ready. I didn't prepare. He goes on and he says, it shows clearly that the end of man is not annihilation or liquidation, that we appear into nothing. It says we're going to be in a lake of fire for eternity, tormented day and night forever. And no one is thrown into the lake of fire against their will. Let me repeat that. No one is thrown into the lake of fire against their will. They willingly chose the ticket. They decided they wanted their name written in other places, not in that book. I want to go to all these events and all these festivals and all these games, but I'll be darned if I'm going to pay for a Purdue ticket. I'm not giving Purdue my money. I'll see all the IU home games, but I ain't giving Purdue any money. We're fine with that. Very noble. Wow, you're a committed fan. Anyone not written. Listen, God, this is going to be people choosing. Satan comes back and people are choosing. They're saying, like Jesus is reigning. He's brought peace to the world. And they're like, yeah, we've been waiting so we could overthrow that guy and get rid of him. And we think this guy's going to do it. And in a second, it all falls apart. And like, oh, wait, we we're wrong. Well, too late. You made the wrong choice. Luke says this, it's actually Jesus. The 70 returned. Jesus sends out the 70 like Acts 1-8 to be his witnesses. They're sent out to be the witnesses as a precursor for what we're supposed to do. The 70 returned with joy. So he sends out 70 apostles. He anoints them with power and the Holy Spirit to go out. And they say, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. This is where the whole binding and Jesus name thing comes from. We went out and even demons were like scared of us and fleeing and people were being delivered. It was amazing. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a lightning flash. You, you, you saw a little demon run away and you're like impressed? <laughs> I saw all the angels and Satan himself fall from heaven. Then he says, look, I have given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing ever will ever harm you. Remember, all of these 70, most of them ended up dying martyrs' deaths. So he's not saying nothing ever will harm you. You'll never be killed for your faith. That's not what this is talking about. He's talking about nothing will ever be able to keep you from that second death, that eternal death. Otherwise, he's a liar. Because if he says nothing will harm you, and then Peter's crucified upside down, then Jesus is a liar. If Paul, if, 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 then Paul gets his head cut off by the Roman Empire. He was harmed. Jesus is a liar. So be careful how you interpret. He goes on and he says, however... Don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You guys are impressed by the stupidest little things. And you're unimpressed with the most amazing things. Which is why we get to the end of the book of Revelation. We're like, yeah, 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 okay, great. Oh, that's going to be wonderful someday. Okay, I got stuff to do today. I got things, I got to go, got to go, got to go. We should be in such praise-giving, thanksgiving, amazement of the thousands of generations God's been faithful to and the rain he's going to bring that we just sit back and we're like, oh, this is awesome. 
that I get to know this, that I, that I have this written and it's in his word, which means it's going to happen. Man, I should be rejoicing every day that my name is written in the book. And when I remember, wow, thank you, Lord, I can look at my neighbor and go, oh, they're not. Any kind of happiness or joy they look like they have is going to be taken away on that day when they stand before God and realize all the happiness and joy they found was placed in all the wrong places. And there's going to come a day when I stand there in my happiness and joy and realize I did it. I placed everything I had in the right place and the outcome is glorious. So even at this, Jesus is saying, why are you so amazed at being able to bind Satan and do all these spiritual things? Why does that amaze you? Why isn't it amazing that there's a God who doesn't destroy you because you're so wicked of heart and deserve such destruction for the, for the treason that you've committed to him and he's given you his full grace, written your name in a book that cannot be erased because if he writes it in his blood, it ain't getting erased out. Who's going to erase your name if Jesus writes it in his blood? He's not going to erase your name. It's not going to happen. Now, your name may not be there. You may think it's there and it's not, but he's not going to erase it. The Bible says that he will complete your salvation. He will complete your life. He will do it. All we have to do is say, yep, you will, and I keep trusting. I'm, I'm in. I'm with you. And when we fail, we come back to him and say, I'm with you. That's it. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's the point of chapter 20 of Revelation. It's not to rejoice over the judgments and all those things. Those things are important. It's to stop and go, oh my goodness. There is a God who has given me a ticket. He has offered. I couldn't pay for it. I couldn't get it. He said, all you have to do is say, please write my name. I believe in you and surrender yourself to that. And when you do that and you go out and make that message known, that's what he's about in your life. And you're going to make good judgments. He's going to change you. You're going to start reading the Bible. Why? Because you want to get ready for this day. You want to get ready for the day when the books are open and he judges and you're like, yes. Here's the beauty of all of this as we wrap up. As we wrap up the judgment that looks so horrible in the lake of fire and people, it'd be awful if the Bible stopped there. But it doesn't. Chapter 21.1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea no longer existed. I also saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. How are we preparing ourselves for this day? Bride adorned. Christ right now is doing his work in your life because he wants to adorn you with the things of God. He wants to show you that you can trust him with a thousand years. You can trust him with a thousand generations. You can trust him because he has proven himself trustworthy over and over and over again. And in his incredible grace and mercy, he's given you a picture of thousands of generations into the future. We don't know when, when this is going to happen and we can be confident. There's not any other religion or God that does that on the face of the planet. That offers his grace in the midst of such terrible, awful judgment and condemnation. And he says, here's the great part about God. He keeps offering it thousands and thousands and thousands of times over, sometimes to the same people. 
because he desires that none would perish, but all would come to repentance. And he offers it to you, and he offers it to me, and it's this beautiful picture of, okay, I'm not in a new earth, I'm in an old earth. It keeps breaking down, because I'm driving the jalopy earth, right? And the jalopy earth keeps breaking down. I can't wait till the new earth, right? But that's where we're at. But you can trust him. And so I ask you this morning, is your name written on the register of the Lamb's book of life? Is your name written? You can't write it there. You can't do enough good works to earn your way to get into the club. Someone had to put your name on the list. You have to be invited to the event organizer and him inviting you. Doesn't matter how much works you do, you can't get in. Doesn't matter if you promise I'll clean your house for 20 years if you just let me into the event. That's not how it works. Jesus is making his offer to you to say, I offer you life. But the requirement is death. You can either die now to yourself or you'll die with everyone else forever. It's your choice. But it's a simple exchange. And when we make that choice to die to ourselves, he is patient and long-suffering and compassionate to walk us through a process of showing us the new life we're going to have as we watch the things die in our life. As we resist the devil, we see that God wins. And that he can work in our hearts and in our lives. So let me ask you, when was the last time, if you do have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life, that you just rejoiced over that? In the midst of everything else going on in the world and problems and wars and jobs you have and the mess of everything, you just paused and went, but my name is written in the Book of Life. I'm good. I'm good. I got this, and I got some people around me whose names have written together, and we're traveling together to the party, and I don't know when we're going to get there, but hey, we're going to keep going together. We're going to resist together. There's going to be little diversions. Don't, no, no, go down this path. Nope, I'm, I'm into the party. You, that's great. You go there. I'm, I got a mission. That's what our God invites us into, and he offers his grace to anyone who will just say, I surrender. I'm going to stop trying to get my name on every list and try to... I just want to be with you and draw near to you and surrender to you. And you do that one time, your name is written, and the rest of the time, God's going to work in the power of his Holy Spirit to change you over time, and you're going to make huge mistakes. You're going to do terrible things. Awful stuff's going to go on, and God is still going to continue to refine and change you and ask you to surrender more and more. And he's going to put people in your life who help you do that. Stay connected to those people. Stay connected to the resistors so that you can make power together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning, the opportunity to be in your word. And Lord, I thank you for the hope of this book, that it is tragic. That as we get down to the end and we see these final judgments and we see the lake of fire and these things that we just don't like to talk about. They're hard to talk about. These are such final things that, are, that just leave us without any manipulation of how we want things to work out. It's just boldly here it is. I thank you that there is an incredible hope to know that you've forgiven us. All we have to do is say, I surrender. All we have to do is allow the Holy Spirit to change us, to, to respond to you because no one is thrown into the lake of fire against their will. Their will goes right along with it. 
And so, Lord, if there are those listening right now who feel that tension of almost that, that angst of, I don't want to die to these things in my life, Lord, I pray that they would finally just say, okay, I'm done. I'm willing to, I'm willing to surrender. And they would do it. And it's a one-time thing. You don't have to do it again and again and again. It's just once that you say, I'm done. And you will help crucify the flesh and you will give us a new life and a new resurrection by your grace. And you will do the works in us that you can only do through the power of your Holy Spirit. And so Lord, if anyone needs to make that decision, I pray today would be the day they would do it. And they'd be done with the things of this earth, the, the ways of this world and be about your ways. And Lord, for those of us who know you, I pray today would be a day after we've just celebrated Thanksgiving that we would take some time to just be thankful to remember that our name is written in your book. We are on the registry. We're on the list, not because we're good enough, not because we prayed some prayer or got baptized, but because you promised that if we cried out to you, if we surrendered to you, you promised that you would write our name down. And you promised that you would send the Holy Spirit to help us on the journey to get to the event, this final event, where we see you in your glory. We thank you and praise you.